Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, where we speak for more than a minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel. I'm founder and CEO of Medical Justice, and we're joined today by our general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Oh, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. So we're going into um, memory lane here by our with our series, Rip from the Headlines. What is that? It's things that we've seen in the news, and it's probably not everybody's newspaper. It's, it's the newspaper we get or the news that we get. And our job is to distill some of these interest, interesting cases to see if there are medical legal nuggets of wisdom in there so you don't get caught in the crossfire. So listen and learn. Here we go. Ready to roll, Mike? Let's do it. Let's talk about this uh, refusal to fill a valid prescription uh, with a patient that then had withdrawal symptoms and in pain. Uh, the outcome, we'll just tell you up front, was, was undisclosed a settlement, and this comes to us from California. A patient was prescribed MS cotton ER, which extended release, an opioid approved by the FDA for management of pain severe enough to require daily round-the-clock long-term uh, treatment uh, by a physician at St. John's Wellchild and Family uh, Center in California. The uh, plaintiff had been regularly prescribed this medication uh, for just about 15 years before this incident happened. So clearly had been on this medication for quite some time to help manage uh, chronic and intractable pain associated with a defective hip uh, implant. And due to heart disease, uh, this uh, condition could not be uh, treated with surgery. So therefore the patient was suffering with chronic uh, pain being managed by this opioid MS cotton uh, ER. The patient went to a, the defendant's a pharmacy in early 2000, in January of 2019, uh, where he had previously been falsely accused of being addicted to pain medication, drug seeking, so forth, uh, by one of the defendant's employees. And uh, had welcome to the welcome to the neighborhood here, right? Yeah. It, so, one has to wonder why he returned to said pharmacy, <laughs> but. Nonetheless, he did. Um, fellow needed his pain medication, shows up, and at this point, one of the defendants there uh, again refuses to fill the, the script and places a call to the uh, prescriber in front of the patient, plaintiff, uh, to verify the legitimacy and origin of the, the prescription. Uh, despite getting verification, the defendant's employee still refused to fill uh, the plaintiff's uh, prescription and, in fact, confiscated the prescription, thereby preventing anyone else from filling it um, <clears throat> and causing a uh, plaintiff, as you might imagine, a significant amount of anxiety and, and pain without the medication. So due to the defendant's wrongful uh, confiscation of the prescription, uh, the plaintiff suffered severe pain associated with the underlying hip condition, could barely walk, as well as agonizing days of opioid withdrawal with symptoms of diarrhea, acute anxiety that gave him reasons to believe that uh, was risk of suffering cardiac arrest, severe muscle aches, abdominal cramping and nausea. Um, you can really just feel for this poor uh, 
poor person is there that's suffering from withdrawals. And uh, this went on for six days and nights. The plaintiff was finally able uh, to see his uh, physician and obtain a new prescription, uh, which was filled somewhere else without difficulty. Lawsuit thereafter filed. And so. there was a settlement. But I'll, I will tell you that the first pharmacy, the pharmacy that was sued for A, not filling the prescription, and B, for confiscating the prescription, which triggered both pain and opioid withdrawal. What do you think of their um, prescription loyalty program that they have in place? <laughs> not much. Well, it's hard to access. Maybe we could agree on that. This is a really sad story. Um, I think the salient medical points is that this patient had been on chronic pain medication, which was a stable dose. I, certainly, if the patient is taking larger and larger quantities of medication that are having less and less of an effect, that is a, a red flag. But in this particular case, the patient had been on a stable dose of medication, and apparently it was working uh, for this patient. So, I mean, check all the boxes uh, right here in terms of um, what what was an effective medication. And the chronicity of this also uh, gives a number of clues. And I don't know, I, 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 I get why this was settled for an undisclosed amount. I'm just shocked that it actually occurred in the first place. Are you not? I am, but it's it's not unfamiliar to me. I've been involved in a case where a national uh, pharmacy had a pharmacist that refused to fill a provider's uh, valid valid scripts. Um, and so I think this happens in large part because of the pressure on pharmacies uh, with the opioid crisis. And so they are uh, trying very hard to not add to an already a difficult a situation. And sometimes, in my opinion, they just go too far. And maybe this was one of the uh, bridge too far here. I mean, it's all healthcare providers are caught between in a rock, rock and a hard place. Uh, we've seen this pendulum swing in the past. On the one hand, um, patients were not receiving enough pain medication. Remember when pain was the fifth vital sign or the additional vital sign, and everybody was asked on scale from one to 10, how do you feel with a frowny face and a smiley face? The thinking being not enough people are getting appropriate amounts of pain medication. That was the before paradigm. The after paradigm is that everybody's guilty until proven otherwise. Everybody's an addict and you wanna give everyone the least amount to no amounts of a narcotic medication, including post-op patients. Now, I do get the challenge, um, which is we're trying to right-size it, to give the right amount of medication to the right patient uh, for the right amount of time. But we're now living in a time period where society is demanding that, that we put on the brakes, that um, if we're thinking about this as a pendulum, it is certainly swung in the opposite direction. It makes it a lot harder to practice medicine, particularly if you're the doctor prescribing a reasonable amount of medication to a patient. And in, in this case, if you're the patient, just trying to get your friggin' prescription filled, you know? Well, and you can imagine smaller communities where there may not be a choice of uh, pharmacies that will honor your insurance. So you may only have one place to go if you have a certain insurance with uh, 
with drug benefits uh, to it. And that puts people in a real spot if they have a valid prescription and their provider is saying, please fill it, and the, uh, the local uh, pharmacy will not do so. It's, um, it's problematic. I think almost every state, certainly most states, perhaps every state, have a database which doctors are cautioned to check against to make sure the patient who just received the, or is about to receive a prescription for a controlled substance is not doctor shopping and whether uh, potentially, if you just look at it to see whether prescriptions are being forged. I've got, we've had this question in the past. If a prescription has been forged and a pharmacy calls and you, the doctor say, uh, no, I did not write that prescription. Um, I do have that patient, but certainly I did not write that prescription. The question is, what do you do? I mean, what what should you do to try and stay out of harm's way? The 10, I mean, for many practices, they think that as long as they've they've as long as they've articulated to the pharmacist that they did not write the prescription, they believe their duty has been discharged and the matter ends. But that may not be the end of it. I I think you probably should go the next step because if somebody has actually forged your name. Or your, and or your DEA to a prescription, and you do little more than tell the pharmacist, you may have you may have some pain coming in your direction down the road from other regulatory bodies. Mike, what do you think? I agree, because there's no way for you to know if it's a one-off incident, right? How do you know that this isn't uh, one script off of uh, three or four pads that were stolen from your practice and someone's um, cashing in on all of these? I think that it, it needs to be, for your own protection, reported and say that this has come to my attention. I don't know if there are others going on, but I didn't write the script and, and alert um, alert people and the pharmacies, right? So they can check if they think maybe Dr. So-and-so's uh, script pad is, is out there and they're being fabricated. So they need to be more cautious with people coming in from that position. I, I agree. I would personally file a police report. I would yeah. also potentially notify the DEA. Why? Because this is a narrative in your words. If you take no action down the road and they go, doctor, did you know that there were um, 45 forgeries? Um, the the narrative, the counter narrative will be that somehow you either knew about it, which would be intentional action, and you would definitely not want to do that because that would be a criminal offense related to diversion, or you had your head in the ground, not paying attention. You were willfully blind to securing your prescription pad. They're, they're both bad. One's worse than the other. But if you're on the receiving end of a DEA investigation, you'll be playing defense. And defense means not just attacks on your license, it's also a journey into the criminal justice system where your freedom may be at play. And I know if this sounds ridiculous, you know, a Kafkaesque tale, uh, I can certainly connect you with a couple of clients that we've had, medical justice members, who found out the hard way that um, it's hard to explain away after the fact. It's certainly easier to explain in advance when you identify the the red flag and then you notify the proper authorities. That's probably a much wiser course of action. Mike? It certainly is going to reduce your interaction, right? It, the I would think that 
people will be far less skeptical of your involvement. Say you can ultimately prove that you've done nothing wrong. Do you really want to go through that process? If you're proactive, get out there. Plus, I think you also have, at least in my mind, a duty to your community if you know that this is going on. Uh, the last thing you want, even if you don't have legal liability for it, uh, is to not prevent uh, multiple drug overdoses, which could clearly happen if people are uh, doing this. So uh, get ahead of this this problem and hopefully stop it, but at least keep yourself from uh, initially being in the crosshairs of an investigation. One of the interesting challenges um, would be patients who have a history of substance abuse but actually have a need for a specific controlled substance to treat a condition. Um, and we, we had a uh, medical justice member who went through this in the not too distant past. And I think they, they did a nice job of doing this. I mean, on the one hand, the simplest thing to do would just be to deny such patients access going forward to any type of controlled substance. But, but think about that. Is that the humane thing to do if a patient, for example, has a history of opioid abuse, um, but has since gone into recovery, has done a nice job, and then ultimately, you know, has major trauma and, you know, a gazillion operations. Can you really, I mean, is it really the right thing to do to deny them any access? I think the the better response is to right-size it, right -size it and control. So, for example, if a patient who has a his, if you've elected to treat a particular patient and you learn the patient has a prior history but is currently clean, um, you could put together a, a roadmap which says that you will be the only person prescribing the controlled substance, uh, that they'll have to engage in periodic urine drug screening test, you'll check the state database, and probably have an agreement that the patient signs that if they violate this, they're out. Now, some people have a no-nonsense policy, which means if they violate any of these provisions just one time, one strike, you're out. Others a little bit more lenient, recognizing human nature for what it is, and they have three strikes, you're out. But regardless, I think having some type of rules in writing in terms of how the doctor-patient relationship is going to proceed, I think makes more sense than a blanket denial of any type of controlled substance to a currently clean patient who has a medical need. You want to add to that, Mike? No, I, th I think that that's I think that that's right. It really gets to what is the standard of care, and I know that this is a, a difficult um, topic, and it, it it varies somewhat by by patient. But uh, just cutting someone off uh, completely is um, also grounds for the the patient to to object that they're not being uh, treated appropriately or the way that that others would be be treated so yes i think that agreements are are typically used in these these situations and if you are not in this area of medicine on a routine or or uh relatively full-time basis uh, these kind of patients are probably ones that uh, you might want to to refer on to and let someone who's doing this um, on a, a large-scale basis handle. Yeah, for two reasons. One is that a, an addiction specialist or pain medication specialist or both have background training experience and they have credentials to manage these individuals. And so all other things being equal, if a regulatory body comes knocking on the door or if it's 
you know, a branch of the Department of Justice like the DEA, they these individuals will likely be given more deference because of the types of patient populations that they treat. It will be more expected that the number of prescriptions being being filled you know against their name as a prescriber will be greater than the average population so if you're a primary care doctor or, or an internal medicine doctor and not an oncologist but you know just bread and butter internal medicine um the expectation is that the number of prescriptions being written for narcotics will be less than that related to addiction specialist or our pain medication so yes i i think there are times it makes sense to stay in your lane and refer some of these challenging individuals to those who are quite comfortable doing that, if nothing else, just to stay out of the crosshairs. But I think it'll it'll make it a little bit easier to manage that particular patient and decrease the number of headaches that, uh, that you're experiencing. Um, I will go on. If, if you are ever perceived to be a pill mill, and because this kind of follows what we're just saying, if you ever perceived to be a pill mill, uh, so what is a pill mill where uh, somebody is writing prescriptions every 10 minutes for a fee, and maybe the practice, perhaps a doctor or or a, a physician extender is just doing a quick survey um, or a or online survey to justify the prescription of a controlled substance, those are pill mills. Um, if you are perceived to be a pill mill, you will have the criminal justice system rain down hard. That includes the DEA, Department of Justice, state law enforcement. That's not, that's not a good day. And the challenge, of course, is that this is beyond just medical negligence or professional liability. Um, you're your um well you'll have to hire a criminal defense attorney and these individuals do not come cheap why because your freedom is at play and you don't really have much to, i mean you can shop it initially but once once you're on board you're on board for the long haul why because your goal is to stay out of prison and then of course your license uh, may be uh, at risk and of course there are you you may still also have issues related to medical negligence so this this is a area that is fraught with concern. I think it needs to be managed and addressed uh, up front. I mean, there are certainly some doctors who are in prison because they believe they're actually helping their patients by providing high doses of narcotics. And then some of these patients later became addicted to street medication. Then, not surprisingly, the criminal justice system blamed the doctor for the underlying addiction that killed the patient and ultimately manslaughter charges were filed. So to reiterate what I just said, the patient may have had a legitimate medical need in the very beginning, was getting a um, prescription for a controlled substance over time, probably received higher and higher doses. The doctor cut the patient off and said, I can't give you any more of this medication, but didn't give the patient any options. The patient then goes out and procures the equivalent on the street. So whereas before the patient may have been getting MS content, uh, they go out in the street and get, I guess, whatever the street is producing related to fentanyl. Lo and behold, the patient overdoses. And it could happen six months to a year later. I don't know that it really matters. Then the 
the unhappy family, not surprisingly, needs someone to blame. It becomes the doctor. So they start off with a with civil litigation, but then ultimately get the criminal justice system involved. And before you know it, you're having to defend um, against manslaughter charges. Not a good day. No, these are not the kind of problems that you need. And my experience with uh, this area is that there are any number of highly tweaked algorithms that will produce your script writing in comparison to others. And there is no place to hide in the digital age, ladies and gentlemen. And if you are an outlier on that bell curve, uh, woe is you. Or it needs to be justified, meaning that you you probably are an oncologist um, treating end-stage patients or you do, you're doing hospice care, but there needs to be a good narrative for that. If it's just a you know bread and butter primary care practice, the perception will be you're running a pill mill till proven otherwise, and the burden will be yours to prove otherwise. You know, Mike, before we leave, I do want to comment about one of the salient facts uh, in this case um, and speak about it more broadly. So here, the patient's prescription, what, first of all, they wouldn't fill the patient's prescription, but at least if the patient had the prescription, she could have gone elsewhere. But they made it even harder. They actually took this patient's prescription thinking they were doing the Lord's work. And um, what happens, she ends up going and, I mean, she experiences pain, but she also goes into withdrawal. Now, fortunately here, um, withdrawal from narcotics is usually not fatal. It's unpleasant, but it's usually not fatal. I think physicians in general should be cautious about, quote unquote, forcing any patient to go cold turkey with any medication. And this comes into the context when you are uh, terminating a doctor-patient relationship. So typically, um, the if you're terminating the relationship, the patient is given a letter which says that um, I'm terminating this relationship. Um, I will. That said, I will continue to see you for urgent or emergent conditions only, whichever comes first. You can find a list of other physicians to take care of you on the County Medical Society website. Uh, we wish you well. Now, that probably discharges your duty in many, although not all cases, related to dismissing the patient. But then you have the sticky issue of what if the patient runs out of medications. I, I'm a fan of giving at least one 30-day refill so that the clock isn't ticking with the the medication running out first. What I don't want to see have happen is that it takes them 30 days to get um, a new doctor as per the description, which generally passes muster with the Board of Medicine. Um, but in that window of time, in that 30-day window, the patient runs out of their medication. So in the example I just gave you, okay, it was um, narcotics, probably not going to kill you, although it would be uncomfortable. But there are other medications where if the patient has been on them chronically and they undergo withdrawal, for example, with a benzodiazepam, Ativan, for example, they run out, it is conceivable that that patient would die. And that would be a horrible malpractice lawsuit. And it would probably, it would arguably also be a charge of abandonment with the Board of Medicine uh, coming in. So, um, I, I kind of treat it the same way as if the patient had been on anti-epileptic medication. 
I mean, that, this is an easy one. If the patient's on anti-epileptic medication, you would give them enough enough of that to survive the one month window at least so that they don't run out of medication. Um, I mean, the patient can always be advised to go to an urgent care and ER after that window of time if they've not found a, a new physician. But I do think if you're paying attention to details, the one detail to me that matters as much as them finding a new doctor is to make sure that they don't run out of a chronic medication that's doing something for them in that window of time, meaning that if they if they go cold turkey, there could be a really bad problem. Well, and you certainly want to be able to prove that the patient was notified of their 30-day window, right? So document document that. So let's wrap up. I think in this particular case, um, we're living in the window of time when um, society wants us to write fewer prescriptions for controlled medications. I'm not saying don't write any uh, prescriptions. I'm just saying do them properly, which means check check the state databases to make sure that your prescriptions aren't being diverted and the patient's doctor shopping and getting much more than you think they're getting. If there's any hint of a forgery of your prescription, I would preemptively and proactively alert police and the DEA, as well as the pharmacies, just to make sure that nobody interprets this uh, in the wrong way. And then finally, I can't imagine uh, patronizing a pharmacy that would take a prescription from, uh, from a patient that had been on a medication for 15 years, particularly when the prescriber was on the phone saying, yes, indeed, I wrote that prescription. Those are my three take-home points. Mike, do you want to add to that? No, I think that the, I think you've you've covered it covered it well. There something odd was going on with that pharmacy. That's uh, what we need to to conclude. Why they would reach out to the provider if it didn't make any difference, which in this case it didn't seem to. Right? They reached out, the provider confirmed it, yet it still made no difference. Uh, that is not a a pharmacist that uh, or pharmacy that you want to work with. Looks like the employee may have been entry level. Maybe. All right. We don't judge. Anyway, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Medical Liability Minute. Hopefully, we will catch up again soon. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's info news, 
at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.